Our second reading tonight is uh, one from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Living to please God. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do more and more, to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for such, all such sins as we already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. We give thanks for this, the word of God. Oh, good evening, friends. Uh, good to see you all and good to see um, you who are here for the first time. Now, if you're here for the first time, you're, you're coming in the middle of a series. We're working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, which was a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to this very young church. So we're about halfway through, and so it's good that you can join us for this. Um, do hang around for supper afterwards. There are some nice dumplings I hear, so hang around for that. Uh, but a warm welcome to you. My name's John. I'm the Assistant Minister at this church. Uh, but let us once again pray, ask that God might help us understand this passage and see what it really should mean for us. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that through it you speak to us and you speak to our hearts. And we pray that you'll do that tonight as we think about what you have said to us and we pray that our lives will be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, tonight in this service here, um, you, you can, in, a, in one sense, separate everyone into one of two groups. There are those of you who consider yourself a Christian. That is, you follow Jesus, you believe in him, you're a disciple, and some of you may have been a Christian for a long time. Some of you are perhaps more recent Christians. But then, of course, there are some of you who are here who are still exploring Christianity, exploring Jesus, exploring what that means. We are glad you are here. We want you to continue. And that is what we want, for you to continue to consider who Jesus is. And so we're glad you're here tonight. But here tonight, for those of you who are Christians, for those of you who consider yourself a Christian, I'd like you guys to sort of cast your mind back one year. July last year, 2015. What was your life like then? So as I'm reflecting back a year ago, I think... 
about a year ago, I was still in Aries Inlet in a jacuzzi outside, enjoying, uh, enjoying that place of Victoria. But casting your eyes, your mind back a year ago and now thinking about your life today. So you're thinking about your life a year today and the change. I'd like to ask you this question. Do you think your life today, after a year, is more pleasing than God than it was a year ago? It's a big question, isn't it? Do you think your life today is more pleasing to God than it was a year ago? Do you think much has changed over that year? If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus. But of course, the, the question should beg us to ask, why should it? Why should it change? I, I may have grown older, but why should my pleasing of God have changed? I thought when I first became a Christian, it was all by grace anyway. It's all free, saved freely by the death of Jesus. I was not saved by being a good person. I was not saved by obeying the laws of God. I was saved because I came to realise, to know that I'm a sinner in need of mercy. I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness and that's why I believe. But then when I did believe, I've crossed the line from being a not, not a Christian to being a disciple of Jesus. I've crossed the line from, from, from darkness to light, from death to eternal life from enemy of God to son or daughter of God. That has happened to me already. So why should I expect that my life should change, that I should be any more pleasing? Well, that might be something we might be asking, but you see, for Christians to think about that way, about Christianity, is to think wrongly. You see, the gospel not only saves us, it saves us, but it also changes us so that our life will become so radical so distinct, so beautiful that it will be pleasing to God. You see, Christianity is not just a whole bunch of ideas, stuff we believe. Christianity is about how we live in response to that gospel, to that salvation. You see, in Christianity, the rubber actually hits the road. It makes a difference to life now and it's meant to be good. It's meant to be good. And so that question again, do you think your life is more pleasing to God now than it was a year ago? Well, in this passage, the Apostle Paul reminds these young Christians that it should be. Just as we heard in our first reading, Paul was reminding the young minister Timothy that everyone should see your progress. And in one sense, Paul wants to see that in the life of this church. And so Paul says, now that you are saved, now that you people have heard the gospel, you've believed, you've crossed the line from darkness to light, from, from death to eternal life, now that you are saved, remember this principle. And so in, a, in our passage, he gives us one principle and, ha, and he speaks of how it affects two areas of life, how it affects our practice. It should change our life. One principle, two practices. And so let's have a look. Paul begins here with this principle. Now that you are saved, now that you do belong to God, live like you do belong to God. Live to please God because God is now just not some distant abstract God. God is now your heavenly Father. So live to please him as your heavenly Father. And this, you see, should really come as no surprise. You see, if you think, 
I'm a Christian now, I am safe now, I am saved now, but I still live for me. I still live my life my way. My life is still mine. In fact, God is there to please me. Then if that is my thinking about Christianity and my faith, then something has gone seriously wrong. Now, David Cook, some of you may have heard of him. David Cook, our general moderator, which means he's the head of the Presbyterian denomination in our country. He has this excellent line. He says, You cannot claim the benefits of redemption but deny its implications. I'll say that again. You cannot claim the benefits of redemption, of being saved by Jesus, but deny its implications. That is, you cannot claim to be saved by the death of Jesus, claim to be brought into the light, claim to be redeemed from damnation, claim to be granted eternal life, claim to have a place in heaven, claim to be adopted into the family of God, but yet deny living out the redeemed life, the godly life, the God-pleasing life, but deny what it means to live under Jesus as both your king, your ruler, your master and also your saviour. You see, you can't say, Jesus is my saviour. That is enough. He saved me, he loves me, he brought me to life, to eternal life. That is good enough. You can't say that Jesus is just my saviour but not my Lord as well. You can't say that Jesus is my saviour. He saved me but he's not my Lord. He doesn't rule me. You see, no, Jesus is both saviour and Lord. It's simple. It's a simple test to see whether you're genuinely a Christian. You accept Jesus as your saviour. You submit to him as your Lord. You see, he's only your Lord because he's your saviour and he can only become your saviour because he is the Lord. And so that line from David Cook again, you cannot claim the benefits of redemption but deny its implications. And what's the implication? Well, the implication is that the Christian life is meant to be pleasing to God. Your life is meant to be pleasing to God. When God looks down upon your life, it's meant to bring him a smile. You see, that's the principle Paul wants this young church to know, to be reminded of. And so have a look with me. Verse 1. Verse 1. He says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live, or literally how to walk, that's the metaphor, in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And then verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now the word instruction here is the word used in military orders, military commands, pass along the line of soldiers. And so Paul is making this clear, what you're hearing here, did not really come from me. It came from up top. It came from the Lord Jesus himself. And he commands you, like a soldier, he commands you, live your life to please God. That is the command for you if you call yourself a Christian. Now, now this principle might sound a bit harsh, burdensome, taxing. This is my life. Somehow I'm meant to live to please God. I thought it's my life. But you have to see how on one level, how awesome this really is that you can live such a life. It is actually awesome that somehow my life can be lived out in a way that will please 
the God of the universe, that somehow the God of the universe can look upon my life, my feeble life here in Surrey Hills, on my life as I begin my day and struggle in getting the kids ready, as I struggle to write my sermons, as I struggle to meet up with people, read my Bible and do all that I have to do each day, that God somehow can look upon that and it will please him. I mean, isn't that awesome that our life can please God, that your life can move the heart of the God of the universe? But then on another level, how liberating it is to know that we can live to please God. You see, so when we do stuff, when we do stuff at home, when we do stuff at church, when we serve, when we work, we're not seeking the approval of those around us. We're not doing it so that they can say, well done. If we know this, we serve to please God. Whether I hear that thank you or not, well done or not, I know that I'm working and serving to please God alone. And so it liberates me to serve freely, in joy, in humility, not seeking the approval of others, but seeking to please God alone. And so Paul here begins with this principle. How are you to live? What's the implication of the gospel? You live to please God. This is the gospel implication. Now he applies that principle to do areas of life, to our practices. Okay, he, he applies that. So how will this principle look in practice? How does this principle affect our Christian living? Well, Paul here focuses on two areas of life, the private life and the public life, the bedroom and the boardroom, sexual purity and brotherly love. And so we'll have a look at each of these in turn. So first, Paul here addresses the area of sexual purity. And he says pretty clearly, you want to please God. You want to be a person that God looks upon and smiles and is happy. You want to please God? Well, you must pursue sexual purity. Now, this would have been so countercultural in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, various forms of extramarital sex was tolerated and some were even encouraged. Now, this, this guy, Demosthenes, a statesman of ancient Greece, he once said this. He said, We have mistresses for pleasure, concubines to care for our daily body's needs and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our households. And so what that's telling us is that in the Greco-Roman world it was not uncommon for men to have on on four different levels different women in their lives. They they could have mistresses who were sexual and intellectual companions. They could have concubines who were readily available from the household slaves. They could have prostitutes easily accessible from the local brothels. And of course their wife whose function really was to manage the household and to raise the legitimate children and heirs. And so you see, in the ancient world the notion of marriage, uh, sex in marriage only was a very strange idea. It, it was strange, really weird. And so these young Christians, these young Christians Paul was writing to, they had to learn that, they had to learn to uphold it. And so what we see here is that he makes clear, you want to please God then. Now that you're a Christian, great, but you want to please God in your life, well, be different from the world around you. Be distinct from the world around you. 
be sexually pure. Have a look with me, verse 3. It is God's will you should be sanctified. That is the word which means to be holy, to be set apart, that you should avoid sexual immorality. What's God's will for your life? Be sexually pure. Avoid sexual immorality. It's just there. Now, what's sexual immorality? Well, it's really a catch-all term for all forms of sexual stimulation or sexual arousal outside the context of a lifelong, exclusive, faithful marriage relationship. And so it can be verbal, you know, the seductive words to those whom you're not married to. It could be visual, the wandering eye. It could be virtual, all up in the mind, the lustful fantasies in the mind. And of course it can be physical. And so he goes on now, verses 4 and 5, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And so Paul's command, you want to be God, you want to know what God's will is? Be sexually pure. That is pleasing to God. You see, and he goes on to say there are consequences if you are not sexually pure. It's not only that it transgresses or defrauds your brother in Christ. That is, it's a sin against the brother if you sleep with his wife. But it also brings along the wrath of God. God is angry. Look at verses 6, 6 to 8. And that in this matter, he's still talking about the same topic of sexual immorality. In this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The word is to literally defraud your brother and you defraud your brother by sleeping with his wife. And why? Well, verse 6 we read on, The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. And so you see, to sin in such a way is not just to sin against the brother or the sister, it's also to sin against God. It is to reject him and his way and him as king. And then verses 7 to 8, we read on. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but reject God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, I wonder how easy it is to forget how serious sexual sins are. You see, we live in a world today, if you think about it, that is really no different from the Greco-Roman world. There's sexual laxity to do almost anything. Our culture is just as promiscuous. Think about pornography. It's normalised. It's in what we read, what we watch, what we search. The stuff available now online at just a click will bring up pages and pages of deprived sexual activity. Just last year, this is what I just learnt recently, I was informed by our safe church unit in our denomination that pornography today is very different from 20 years ago when I was a teenager. 20 years ago it it was bad but today it is depraved, the stuff that is accessible online. What about premarital sex? Well, today it's just expected that that's what you would do, fooling around with each other while boyfriend or girlfriend or just fiancé. I remember when I was a teenager, when I was still in high school, a friend bragged about his sexual exploits. And today, what has happened? Well, the age has just dropped lower and lower and lower. What about extramarital affairs? Well, today it's sort of approved of, isn't it? 
because you're just following your heart. You're just giving your love to someone else. In just the recent, perhaps two months, I've heard of four different cases of affairs. It's terrible. This is just in my circle, the people I know. Four cases. And now there's a whole industry like Ashley Madison that encourages affairs, it normalises it, normalises sin, makes it okay. I mean, this is terrible. This is the world we live in. But Paul is clear here. Jesus is clear here. We must be warned. None of these things can please God. None of these things can please God. Rather, they bring on the wrath of God. And so, by way of implication, let's reflect on this for a moment. Those of you who are struggling with pornography, and I know there are, I know there are, it's just that common, but you need to make a clean break from it. You can't just dabble, because once you dabble, you're enslaved. You need to firstly acknowledge how heinous this terrible sin is, how enslaving it is. Just about a week and a bit ago, I ran a a seminar at a camp just for blokes and we spent a bit of time exploring how terrible pornography is and how damaging it is. It's not good for those in the pictures or the video. It's not good for your church. It's not good for yourself, for your own godliness. It's not good for your future spouse. It's not good in your view of the opposite sex. You objectify them. It's not good for God. It's just not good for anyone. It's damaging, completely and utterly damaging. And so, if you do struggle with pornography, if you do struggle, and there are, know, of course, that there is genuine, complete forgiveness in Christ. It is that big. The death of Christ, it is that sufficient. But do make yourself accountable to someone else. Do make yourself accountable to someone else. If you can't find someone else, find me, speak to me. You see, seeking to please God is more important than our pride by keeping it hidden. Now, what about if you're single? Well, if you're single, keep your eyes, your mind and your heart pure. No dirty talk. No wandering eye. Now, this is what I do. I'm a person, a human being just like you and I have my own struggles. Every time I find my eye wandering, I always stop myself. No second look. Stop myself right there, no second look. And then I say a quiet prayer inside. I say, Lord, please keep my eyes, my heart, my mind pure. And God answers that because that person ends up looking quite ugly after that prayer. (laughs) No, it doesn't happen that way, but it dispels any temptation. You see, we need to be pure in our pursuit. Seeking to please God is more important than that fleeting gratification. Now, if you're dating if you're dating someone, if you're engaged, then no fooling around at all, at all. No form of sexual stimulation arousal, be it verbal, visual, virtual or physical. No pushing the boundaries like the Pharisees. Let's see what we can get away with. No, you run the other way. You flee sexual immorality. You pursue purity and godliness. Now, in the future when that dreaded day comes and Esther brings home a boyfriend, better not be a boyfriend yet, he better ask for my permission first, but I will get him to promise me. You promise me, you want to date my daughter? She's only nine years old, so it'll be hopefully you know, a 
couple of decades away. <laughs> you want to date my daughter, you make me this promise. You, you don't just treat her like your girlfriend, you treat her like your sister. You be that pure with her. You be that pure with her and if, he's, if he agrees to that, then I'll be okay. Now, I'm, I've sent her to a girls' school so I'll keep her there for a while. <laughs> and so, if you are dating, if you are engaged and you're finding it difficult to stay pure, to stay sexually pure, well, what do you do? Well, two things. Either break it off. Your godliness is more important. Break it off. And recently I had to say to one, one couple, break it off. This is no good. You're going too far. Or the other solution is get married quickly. Don't wait. Get married quickly. Don't play with fire any longer. You see, seeking to please God is more important than temporary pleasure. And now what about those of you who are married? Well, the principle is clear, isn't it? Eyes only for each other. I went to a wedding yesterday and there was a wonderful prayer that was prayed for this new couple. They, the, the person prayed that they would only have eyes for each other, eyes for only each other, but hearts that are big enough to love all those around them, but eyes only for each other. And so if you're married, eyes only for your spouse, remain faithful in thought, in, in words, and of course with your body. You see, sexual purity is something for all of us here. I've covered everyone here, either single or married, dating, you're all covered. Sexual purity is something for all of us to pursue, single, married, whatever. And so Paul here, in fact Jesus, is commanding, you want to please me with your life. I've saved you, I've given my son for you. You want to please me with your life? With your life? then pursue sexual purity. This is God's will for you. Now, another practice that Paul addresses is this area of brotherly love. If you want to please God, then you must love your fellow brother and sister, your fellow Christians. And how do you love? Well, you love by not being lazy and a bludger, but a hard worker. That's, that's how he's applying this principle. Now, we're not exactly sure why this was taught. Don't be lazy, don't be dependent upon others, but get back to working hard and becoming independent. We're not exactly sure why, but it could be because in Greek culture, manual labour was despised and looked down upon. And so if you had to work with your hand, it was despised. That was the stuff of slaves. And so Perhaps these young Christians, they thought that too. They didn't change from this culture they were brought up in. Or it could be because these young Christians thought that Jesus would return so soon that they could just give everything up and wait. But either way, Paul here makes clear, you want to please God? Well, you've got to love. And how do you love? You love with your hands. You love by working hard. Have a look at verses 9 to 10. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you brothers to do so more and more. And how were they to do that? How were they to show love? Well, look at verses 11 to 12. 
make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. In fact, it can be translated, make it your ambition to have no ambition. Uh, And then it goes on, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anyone. And so you want to please God, show love by not being idle, not neglecting your responsibility and obligation to work. And so when you work, you can provide, you can help, you can serve, you can give, whereas those who don't work, not because they, they, they can't but because of laziness, then they're just leeches. They're bludgers that Paul speaks against. Now, just imagine if this were true for, for me in my family. Just imagine I did no work at all. I depended completely on Yvonne to do all the work, work the 40, 50, 60 hours, whatever she needs to, to support the family, to pay the bills, to do all the stuff at home. And I just laze around. I roast some beans some days. I drink lattes three times a day. I just laze around and watch TV. Imagine that was the case. I would have no respect from you at all. And so that was what Paul was speaking against. You wouldn't respect such a person. I wouldn't respect such a person. But it does happen. I think I told you this recently. I've heard of a Christian man. This is, this is in, in Melbourne. He chose to retire early, not because he can't work any longer, but because he couldn't find work that was not below him. He was an automatist. He couldn't find work that was better than that. And so instead of working and supporting his family, he chose instead to depend on his young daughters to support the family, to pay the bills, to pay for the brother's school fees. I mean, when I heard that, I was thinking, this is dishonourable. There's more honour in working at Woolies. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Stacking shelves, that is more honourable. That is honest work than being a lazy guy like that. Not only there is no working in not working, no honour in not working, it is unloving as well. Now, of course, this passage is speaking about those who, who bludge so that they can depend on the Christian brothers and sisters to support them, depend on the church's welfare. It was a different time to us now. And so if you think about that, it doesn't really apply to us today because, in a sense, the church is not, not that, that place of welfare. Our government does a pretty good job in providing generous, this generous welfare system. But yet the principle still remains, doesn't it? We love by working, by being busy, not busybodies. Work in paid job or unpaid job. We work because we love. In the past, I've encouraged, I had to encourage some young men not studying, living at home, not working, just playing games all day. I said, you can't go on like that. That's unloving to everyone around you. You're just wasting your life away. Work, get out there, be productive so that you can provide, so that you can share. That is loving. Now, of course, I need to say something about the flip side of that. I think our problem today is not so much that we won't work. I mean, that might be an issue for some of us. Our problem today is that we work too much, that we neglect the more important thing. But Paul is clear here. You want to please God with your life? The principle is please God. The practice, sexual purity, Brotherly love, work and love. And so now, if we return to the question we began with, do you think 
your life now is more pleasing to God than a year ago? Do you think your life is more pleasing to God in just these two areas of sexual purity, brotherly love? Well, it might be the case that you can't just you just can't remember, and that's okay. This is not a guilt treatment. We must always keep the gospel centre in our lives, in our church. We must always keep the gospel centre. We are saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, the only Saviour, through faith alone. All my good works did nothing at all to save me. We must remember that. I am saved and redeemed and reconciled freely by the work of Christ alone. 100% Jesus 0% 0% me. We must remember that our salvation is Jesus alone. But, but I cannot claim the benefits of redemption but deny its implications. I cannot claim the benefits of redemption but deny its implications. You see, these two areas of life that Paul speaks of in our passage, we must remember how countercultural that is. The early church, they got this, they understood this. And so, Timothy Keller, pastor in New York, in his research he, he found this. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. That was the early church. They understood that. They understood what it meant to please God. And that must be the same for us today. For us who are Christians, if we claim that we are a disciple of Jesus, we must please God in this way. Stingy with our bodies, pure sexually, but generous with our work, with our money, with our love. This is pleasing to God. And so, if we look back, and we can't really tell whether our life has improved, whether our life is more pleasing to God. That's okay. Now let's look forward. A year from now, a year from now, 2017, will your life, because of the gospel, will your life, because of the gospel implication, be more pleasing to God? Well, it should be. It must be. Christ died for you, not so that you can continue to wallow in your filth and sin. Our life cannot remain unchanged by the gospel, but our life must be transformed, so transformed, so renovated, so sanctified, so beautiful that it pleases God, the God of the universe. And just imagine if that were so. It must be so for us here in this church. We've claimed the benefits of redemption and we're living out its implications. And so, one step at a time, one day at a time, one year at a time, one decade at a time, our life is increasingly becoming more and more pleasing to God. And what a joy that will be and how good that will be for us. But more than that, What a big smile that will bring to the face of our God. Until one day, what will happen if we continue to do this? Well, one day, slowly but surely, what will happen to us? What will God do to us? 
Well, C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He said, God will make the feeblest and the filthiest of us into God and goddesses, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. One day, God is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. One day we'll be just like God when Christ returns. And so, do your life, do you think your life is more pleasing to God than a year ago? Might be hard to answer, but will your life be more pleasing to God in one year's time? Well, I want you to pray that for me and I'll pray that for you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and honour you for the salvation you have freely given us. Just as these brothers and sisters of mine have claimed the benefits of redemption, help them all to never deny its implications, but to live out such a life that it will please you and bring you a smile. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.